of invitation will be, there's a great day coming. You want to be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Our thoughts for this morning will come from that chapter in just a moment. It's again good to see uh, each of you here and uh, grateful for your presence with us. Um, we do have a uh, number of visitors this morning. We also have a number of our own folks out of town. You know, June's going to be an extremely busy month for this congregation. And so if you have not already begun to pray for safety and travel for the various groups who will be leaving from this place and going other places, hope that you'll start doing that on a regular basis throughout this month. A lot of youth activities and other things that are going on. Uh, maybe July will be slower, probably not, but at least, at least we can look forward maybe to June coming and going with uh, safety and success in the things that we're doing. Uh, among our visitors this morning, um, we have uh, some good friends of ours from across the river, and we're thankful to have Robert and Blair here with us this morning. Robert's the pulpit preacher for the South Haven congregation, and the congregation that is extremely dear uh, to all of our family uh, from a long, long time ago, even before preaching days, but uh, appreciate their work and their uh, taking time out of their vacation to be here with us uh, this, this morning. Also, not visiting, but in our midst, we have the Balance family. And so I'm just asking you to raise your hands where you're sitting. Um, Katie, can I see your hand? Thank you. All right. Um, we have been anticipating this day for a number of months now, and uh, we're thankful that they're here. Uh, everything's unloaded. The house is completely set up. There's no back boxes left to be unpacked. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, they did get into town about uh, about four o'clock on Friday, and uh, so we are super excited that they're here. And uh, Lucy as well. We will make her raise her hand uh, this morning. But uh, we are grateful uh, for the work they've put in for the two years. Both of them graduating from Bear Valley a few weeks ago, and uh, we are anticipating great partnership in the kingdom and in this community. Uh, working together. And so I uh, hope if you haven't welcomed them, you'll do so. Tonight we begin a new quarter of Bible classes. So uh, if you have not been attending or you've been thinking of attending, we would encourage that you, that you do so. Uh, if you have not gotten back into that habit um, because of all the, uh, the distance and uh, the not meeting, uh, just encourage you to, to take a look at it again and maybe come back and be with us uh, this afternoon at five o'clock. Uh, Bible classes all the way from Crater Roll up through uh, the 30 and up class that's in here in the, uh, in the auditorium. And so if you come back and you don't know where to go, we'll have folks to direct you to get you where you need to be. You know, we are, we are made to give our attention to and put our focus on things that are more important than a lot of the things that preoccupy our time and minds. I'll just say it that way. We were created to think about things that are, that are bigger than we generally look, things that generally catch our attention. Paul told us in Colossians chapter 3 to seek those things which are above, to set our minds on things above. The reason is, is because as human beings, we get distracted with what's right in front of us. And we begin to fill our minds, we begin to fill our times, we begin to fill our hearts with things that they may not be sinful in and of themselves, but they do not matter beyond this life. They may not even matter beyond today or tomorrow, but they certainly don't matter beyond this life. Tony Rinke in his book, Competing Spectacles, said the creator has 
carved out in every human soul a vast interior storeroom for Christ's glory. And we fill this storehouse with worthless trinkets like a hoarder. Whatever catches our eye, whatever catches our attention, whatever we're thinking about at the moment, that's the thing that gets us, that captures us, and that keeps us. And so preaching, among other things, is designed to center our minds back on the things that are really important. To, to get a, a view again of the things that are significant, that are, that, that, that are eternal in nature. And when we hear preaching and when we study scripture, when we, when we come to Bible class and we, we discuss matters in our homes of, of right and wrong, we, we should automatically begin to reprioritize to move out of our hearts and off of our schedules and out of our lives the things that are distraction and replace those things with the things that are eternal, with the matters that, that are significant, that they're important. One way that we do this in preaching is we try to drive people to certain points of, of consideration, to, to certain events or places heard a long, long time ago that every sermon that's preached should lead us to two places. To the hill of Calvary and to the judgment bar of God. That a preacher who preaches the truth, who, who spends time in the Word, who, who cares about the people that he's preaching to, will eventually get those listening to both of those places in every sermon. That we should always spend a little bit of time at the foot of the cross and a little bit of time in every sermon at the judgment bar of God and see where we measure up in those two great places, who we are in light of those events. And so for the last, and I don't think this thing is working, for the last few weeks, maybe it is or maybe it's not. I'll never know, by the way. Um, we've been talking about judgment parables. And friends, the reason we've been talking about judgment parables is the very thing we just mentioned by way of introduction. Is that we live in a world that captures our attention, that, that holds our thoughts, that, that takes captive our hearts about things that do not matter, that will not matter, and we've got to spend some time contemplating where we stand before the Lord. If He were to return today, if our lives were to be over, what would be our destiny? And if it isn't what we want it to be, if it isn't what God intended for us to be, if it wasn't, isn't what the cross made it possible for us to be, then we've got to do some rearranging, some unpacking, some taking out of our hearts, putting something else in, and becoming different people. Now that process in Scripture is known as repentance. That's the process. Self-evaluation, the, the, the measuring of who I am versus who God wants me to be and what I can do in my life to change so that I am then recipient. God's matchless grace that my sins might be forgiven, that I, I might be different. And so with that thought in mind, we want to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 21. And our, our judgment parable for today is not necessarily a parable about judgment but about what makes judgment palatable for us in the tale of two sons. It really a parable about repentance. Simplistic story from Scripture. 
Now, I will say this, that over the last three weeks, six souls, at least publicly, have begun that unpacking process. They've publicly responded to the Lord's invitation, asked for prayers, in, in need of forgiveness, in need of a, of a direction in life, a need to, to stop focusing on those things that will fail us and start looking at the things that will never leave us, things that matter. Maybe there are others who've started that same journey you just haven't acknowledged it publicly. You, you haven't made a, 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 a confession on, on a front pew or asked for prayers from the congregation. I hope that today's final lesson in this series will help us to appreciate what it truly means to begin to unload those things, to change and to turn and to be different. Now, let's read together the first part of this, of this text. We won't read all of it right now. We'll read it a little bit more in, in a moment. Jesus says, beginning of verse 28, but what do you think? By the way, that's a common phrase in the book of Matthew as Jesus began teaching in parables. Tell me how this sounds, we might would say. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. That, that's the story, by the way. That's it. That's the parable. Maybe you're expecting a short sermon because of that, but it's probably not going to be. But that's the parable. It's, it's short in nature and very simple in, in its conversation. Now, the application he's going to get to in a moment, we'll talk about that as, as we introduce it. But, but this, this story, in, in those just few verses, there are some, some great things. Number one, this is a story about great prosperity. Did you notice the setting? It was a man who owned a vineyard. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, starting around Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, where he tells them, listen, you're going to go into a land, you're going to conquer that land, and you're going to be the, the beneficiaries of vineyards that you didn't plant. And from that statement in Deuteronomy 6, you can trace the, either the faithfulness of God to his people or the punishment of God on his people by the produce from their vineyards. Sometimes they would be overflowing and God's blessings would be on them. And sometimes God would send the locusts and the worms in to eat up their vineyards. But all of it was in, in, in a reminder of that, that that was a symbol and sign of great prosperity. This man owned a vineyard. This vineyard concept is going to be used by Jesus in the chapter before ours in Matthew 20 to tell a story, a parable about the end of time. It's going to be used just after this parable to tell another parable about the end of time. The produce of the vineyard is going to be worked into and fashioned into our weekly worship service and the observance of the Lord's Supper. It's going to be a, a part of Jesus' first miracle in Cana of Galilee, turning water to wine. It's a sign of prosperity, of spirituality, of success, and of growth. Don't miss that as you read this parable. This isn't just a man who has a garden in his backyard. This man owns a vineyard. That's great prosperity. It's also a tale of intimate relationships. This story, this parable of two sons, is a story about intimate relationships, a father and his two sons. You know, in Matthew's account, Matthew refers to God as our father more than any other biblical writer. 
It's a concept alluded to in the Old Testament, but really fleshed out more in the New Testament. It's, it's in Matthew that we first learned that when we pray, we pray our Father in heaven. It's a sign of intimate relationship. God didn't do that simply to exercise his authority over us. Matthew's point in calling God our Father wasn't just so we would know he's in charge and we're subject to him, although it does relay that. That's not Matthew's only reason for giving it. It's so that I will feel a connection to him. He's my creator. He's my Lord. He's the sovereign one, as was prayed earlier. But he's my father. And a father with two sons. Your barrenness in biblical times was associated with a curse, maybe even with sinfulness, with a lack of blessing and grace from God. Children were seen, as the psalmist described them, as a heritage from the Lord, blessings from God. And those who were once barren, who had children, thanked God even more because God had blessed them. There was something special about having children, but then male children, well, they were even more significant, weren't they? In Bible times, this man didn't just have a vineyard. This man had two male children. Think about all the Bible families of the Old Testament that come to our minds and hearts when we think about a man with two sons, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Jacob, or Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. It's an intimate concept that's relayed to us in this story don't don't miss that because i think it's important for how they respond to their father it's also a story about clear expectations now i won't ask for show of hands but i'm going to assume that most of us have been given a job before and not been told how to do it or why we should be doing it or what steps we take to get it done efficiently we've just been told here's your job or not even that clear here's what you could do It's confusing, it's frustrating, it's difficult for us. But you notice he said, today, go and work. Notice how particular, significant, and direct that command is. In my vineyard, they knew what place, they knew what time, they knew what work. Story of clear, concise expectations. And if our Father in heaven is represented by this Father in the parable, we understand why the parable describes him as one who gives clear expectations, don't we? That's exactly the way God treats us. And by the way, it's the same way he treated Israel, which is who this parable first applied to when it was given. A parable of clear expectations. Then it's also a parable, by the way, all of this is introductory material to get to two main thoughts in the parable, so just bear with us. A parable about two sinners. Friends, if we can't see that, we miss the point of what Jesus is talking about here. Let's pick back up in our reading And read what Jesus says after he tells the parable. He says, which of the two did the will of the Father? Picking up in verse 31. And they said the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward, so as to believe him. This is a parable about how two sinners responded to the call of God. It's about how two sinners responded to the invitation to work in his vineyard. It's about how two sinners processed 
the, 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 the work of the father and the response of their father and the responsibility they had to their father. Interestingly enough, in the parable, the two sinners represented the two sides of the religious world that Jesus came to. The side of the religious elite who thought they were right no matter what they did and the side of those who were despondent who thought they were wrong no matter what they did. And the invitation came to both to work. Now both because of their disposition, because of their outlook, because of the way they thought of themselves, probably because of the way they thought of their father, they both responded differently. And Jesus makes this point very clear. It's really not how you start. It's how you finish. It's really not, not where, where, where you came from and, and, and how much you knew and, and where your past was and what you were guilty of. It was about what happened when you were given the invitation to work in the vineyard, when you were pressed by a preacher or a teacher or a parent to the point of seeing judgment and knowing, I've got to make a change. What are you going to do with that? How do you respond to it? Because see, the one who has been religious their whole life, the one who, who knows the law, the, the, the one who, who has the, the chief seat, the one, the one who's seen and as reputation of, of having the, 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 the lengthened tassels and the, and the broader garments and the, and the larger phylacteries, they end up in the parable further away from the kingdom than the tax collector and the prostitute. Because it never has been about our merit. never has been about our accomplishments. It never has been about our standing. It's always been about our response to God's invitation. What do we do when we're presented with the judgment of our God? So what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want us to look at those two responses and just ask why anyone would make that type of response. Because in the likelihood that of the six that have responded to the Lord's invitation publicly and some others who haven't, there are probably others from the sound of our voice over the last few weeks who needed to respond. Maybe didn't even realize it. Because in their minds, listen, I've always been here. I've always been doing what's right. I've always been faithful. And so there's no need for me to change. There's no need for me to rearrange my heart. There's nothing I need to dump out and something I need to put in. I'm just going to go on the way I've been because I feel right. That's the response of the Pharisee and the publican in this, or the Pharisee in this text. The publican response is the other one. They may not know exactly what's wrong, but something is. Now I've got to change it. So let's, let's look at, the, at these responses in reverse. Let's look at the, first, the second response first. The second response is, I will, sir. But what does the text say? But he never went. I will, sir. I'll go. But he never went. What would lead a man to make that statement? What, what would lead a person to, to sing the songs we sing in worship, to, to hear the invitation extended, to not respond to it, to leave out saying, listen, I know I'm right, I know I'm good, I'm going to go do your will. But then Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday come and there's no will of God done. There's no work in the vineyard. There's no response in, 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 in the aspect of, of, of being compared to judgment. It doesn't happen. So what causes a person to say they will, but they won't? Quite frankly, that's where a lot of us stand more than any other time, more than any other situation in our lives. It's often been pointed out, hasn't it, that the great promises we make in the songs that we sing, the great dedication we make when we amen the prayers that have been, that have been said, only to find ourselves busy with the things that distract from Monday to Saturday. 
So why do we do that? Why, why do we say, yes, sir, I will go. And then we don't go to the vineyard and we don't work. I'll give you three reasons. Number one, some say that and don't because they become disenchanted with the work they've been assigned. They become disenchanted with the work they've been assigned. I thought I would have a bigger place. I thought I would be doing more. I thought I would get more recognition. I thought it would feel better to be involved in the work of the church. It just hasn't. So maybe this just isn't for me. I actually talked to people. You probably have too. I've tried religion. I've tried the church. I've tried to be involved. It's just not my thing. I made a promise. I made a vow. I was told to go. I said I would. I, I looked apart, but just didn't feel like that's what I wanted to be. Not what I wanted to do. We need the attitude of the psalmist. We'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. That's who we ought to be. And yet sometimes we say we will and we won't because we expected a bigger part, a better part, a different part of the work. A second reason why we might say and not do is because we've never really been that serious about doing somebody else's will. Did you notice the language of the parable? Which one did the will of the Father? You know what the, the, the meaning of that is, right? When they didn't do the will of the Father, you know whose will they did do? They did their own. They did their own. The man who said, I will go, but didn't. That man did some, his own will. He didn't do the will of the Father. You know, some people in this world are just not interested in doing somebody else's will. Their, their, their engagement is not about someone else's agenda. It's not about someone else's life. It's not about someone else's goals. It's about what they want. Why? Because their heart is full of the stuff that's temporal, of the things that distract, the things that are tomorrow and the next day and this week and this life. So some say they will and they don't simply because they've never really been that concerned about doing somebody else's will. Number three, some say I will, but they don't. Because they're more concerned about the appearance than the execution. Friends, that's really the heart of what's going on in this parable. You see, it looks good to say I will. It feels good to say I will. It gives the, the public perception that I will do this, a, a vow that's made, a commitment that's made, a, 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 a promise that's given. Now, what we're not told in this parable is if the man intended on ever going. We have to read into it to get that out of it, one way or the other. Maybe he had good intentions. Maybe he intended to go. Maybe, it was, maybe it's always been his habit to go, but this time he just didn't. But if the Pharisees are the ones represented by this man, we know that's not the case. They liked the outside of the cup, right? They liked to give off the appearance of righteousness. They liked to give off the appearance of spirituality. And so they would say publicly with loud and, and boisterous claims, I will serve the Lord knowing internally it was all about them and their will. Now, I don't know if that's who you are this morning, but if so, I'd like for you, at least for the remainder of our time, to reflect on changing that. Because it's not as much about the songs that we sing as it is the content com commitment that we have to live out those songs. Not even as much about the prayers that we pray as it is the commitment to live out those prayers or the sermons that we preach or that we amen or that we say good job to that we don't live out. It's not about the appearance. It's about the execution of those things. So on the flip side, to end on a, on a positive note, not just for this lesson but all these lessons, what would cause a person to say, I will not, but then go? 
We cause the person to say, I will not, but then go. Because really, that's where we ought to be at some point in life. I won't do it. That's not for me. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to be involved. Let somebody else do it. I don't want that in my life. I don't want that on my plate. And then I realize something different. And I repent. And I go. What would cause a man to change his mind like that? For the sake of symmetry, let's give three, three reasons. Number one, because of the wisdom of personal reflection. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't destroy us the moment we decide we're not going to go work? That he doesn't shut down that communication and shut off our opportunities and leave aside our, our place in the kingdom the moment we first say no because all of us have said no before. And he gives us a mind to think and to wonder and to study and to pray and to reflect and think, you know what, I really need to be doing that. Now, it takes a lot of humility to come back and to go, to, to realize and, and to say with, with, with words, with actions, what I, what I thought was wrong, what I intended was wrong, now I'll do it. But there's wisdom in personal reflection. And I wonder in our current society if we spend enough time in that, in that mindset. We fill all of our waking hours and our free moments with stuff and noise and interaction to the point that we don't have a lot of time to sit and reflect on the day and on the decisions and on the choices. But if I'm going to be a person who will eventually say, I'm going to go, even though I didn't before, I'm going to need to spend some time in personal reflection. Number two, this man may have changed his mind because of the regret of a disappointed father. So you can't leave aside the intimacy of that relationship in the parable when the son says, I want it, and then he goes. Because you know what? He's not just telling his boss he's not coming to work. He's, just not, he's not just telling his neighbor, I don't want any part of that. He's not just telling some stranger down the road that he doesn't want to help him. He's looking at his father in the eye and saying, I will not do what you want me to do. And there ought to be a serious amount of regret with that choice. You know, interesting thing is, we don't, we don't find the father in the parable lashing out or getting angry or blasting the son, finding someone else, talking about him to his brother. Father just asks. In that moment of silence, in that moment of reflection, he understands the disappointment that his father feels and the choice that he's made. Have you ever been there when it came to your walk with the Lord? Because I know that there are times that we sin, we don't realize it. We didn't intend to. We, we're, we're overtaken. We're, we fall into something. There are times, though, in our lives where we willfully do something that we know God doesn't want us to do. Have, have you ever sat in those moments of reflection And felt the sorrow of knowing that your father was disappointed in what you did. I believe, friends, we're supposed to see that in this parable. Here's an intimate relationship with a man and his two sons. And a son says, Father, I'm not going to work for you. And then a third, third reason 
Well, I believe someone would change their mind. They would say, I will not, but later we'll do. It's because the untold blessings in the vineyard. Because the untold blessings available to him in the vineyard. See, his father's vineyard is a place that will sustain life. See, vineyards were also seen in Bible times as a sign of inheritance and wealth. See, what was the father's vineyard would eventually be the vineyard owned by those two sons. And the work they put in, the produce that came from it, wouldn't just benefit their father. It would benefit the sons and their families and their sons and their families. There are blessings for generation after generation after generation for just simply working in the vineyard. And when the son realizes it, he regrets the short-sightedness of his choice. And he goes back and he works for the good of the father, for the good of the current family, for the good of the future. Friends, I would dare say that in the past three weeks, those who responded publicly to the Lord's call have done so for that very reason alone. Because where they've been, the, the worry and fear about judgment that they've felt, the, the lack of fruitfulness that they, they've seen in their lives, they, they don't just realize it's, it's today. That, that affects tomorrow. That affects my God. I want the blessings of the vineyard. I wasn't there, but I will go now. Because the blessings in the vineyard outweigh anything that any property anywhere has outside the vineyard. Is that not the way that it is in Christ? Is that not the way the Bible describes it in Jesus? <clears throat> that according to Ephesians chapter 1, all spiritual blessings are in him? And he invites me to come and to be a part of that, to sit down and dine with him, to work in his vineyard, to labor in his house, to eat at his table? And then I say to him, I'd rather work somewhere else. Eventually that man, if he's thinking right, will say to himself, it's better in my father's house as a servant than it is out here in the world. I'm going to go home. It's the last of the parable, parables of judgment that we'll consider. It's not hopefully the last time that we will journey together to the judgment bar of God. But for this week, the invitation is yours. Which man represents you in the story? Friends, we're not the father. And we're not someone who's worked tirelessly, without fail, without stopping, without quitting. We've all been on one side of that ledger or another. Where do you stand today? Are you one who once said no but are now there? Or are you one who has vowed that you will? But the distractions and the difficulties of promised life have kept you from doing it. Wherever you stand today, if you don't stand with the Lord, tragedy waits. And so the invitation to come to Christ is open. Those who've never obeyed the gospel will study with you about how to do that. For those who have, would encourage you to look deeply as you stand before the judgment bar of God, at least in your mind's eye, your invitation. And make change if need be while we stand and sing.